and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by executive editors Bowman Cox and Nielsen Hobbs. Today is May 13th, 2022. For our superstitious listeners, here are some interesting FDA and pharma industry stories to contemplate while you hide from the bad luck on Friday the 13th. First up is the FDA user fee reauthorization bill. For those of you who listen regularly, you know the bill was introduced last week. This week, it ran through the first markup by the House Energy and Commerce Committee's Health Subcommittee, and it's poised for a full committee markup in the coming days. This also was the first chance we saw a public airing of lawmakers' issues with the bill, and it seems like some changes could be made before it moves to the House floor. One of the problems lawmakers raised was with a provision that would allow the FDA to give detailed and active ingredient information to generic sponsors upon request. The original bill said sponsors could get the exact amount of the inactive ingredient deviation from the reference product, but Republicans said this could lead to disclosure of confidential commercial information and upset the Hatch-Waxman balance. Interestingly, the most contentious part of the debate was over a device issue. Lawmakers want to define so-called remanufacturing of devices as compared to servicing. Several lawmakers wanted to put the issue in the bill, but committee chair Frank Pallone said there there were so many differing views that a compromise likely can't be reached in time for the next markup or even to pass the bill on time this summer. Neither of these issues are going to sink the bill, but I'm curious what you all think of this. In terms of fighting over legislation, this is kind of tame. Yeah, I think you're, uh, you're, you're right. Derek, it's uh, the legislation itself is not that ambitious uh, in terms of sort of potential FDA reform. And so you'd think that the uh, the fights around it would uh, be equally mild. So that uh, that makes sense. And that's, uh, you know, in keeping with the uh, uh, Chairman Pallone's priorities to get the bill uh, bill passed before anyone at FDA has to worry about their uh, their funding stream or uh, getting laid off or uh, any of those things. Yeah. And just so people understand, part of the rush here is not only do they want to get this done before campaign season really kicks in and nothing happens in Congress, they, but they also have to make sure that the bill is done pretty much by about August, because around that time, if they're still un, if it's still unclear whether the whether it's going to be passed, they have to the FDA has to go and tell employees whose salaries are paid for with user fee funds that they could be laid off if the program isn't reauthorized by uh, September 30th. And that's happened, I believe, once before, and it wasn't it wasn't good. It can this kind of uncertainty can crush morale and can cause a rash of resignation. So, you know, there's there's a uh, there's a uh, uh, incentive to kind of keep the keep things you know, to only put things in the bill that are kind of that are agreeable to both sides, which is why we saw a a bipartisan announcement of the the original bill when it when it when it came out, and and we've pretty much seen comments along those lines that you know this is a win for everybody and and those sorts of things. Yeah, Derek, you watched the uh, the markup at the uh, as you uh, said that mouthful of the uh, the committee subcommittee. I. Uh, <laughs> I always sort of uh, am annoyed by that nomenclature and appreciate the fact that uh, the Senate doesn't sort of use some committees in the same way. But uh, you know, obviously, uh, the bigger uh, the bigger uh, chamber needs those uh, uh, subcommittees in the House. But uh, um, having to repeat having to repeat the uh, the word committee twice in a title just uh, just annoys me from an aesthetic uh, point of view. But but uh, anyway, um, my sense was there was more uh, Republican effort to uh, 
um, perhaps add some amendments then to Democratic amendments sort of at this uh, at this stage. What did you see? I mean, I mean, it, it's it's hard to it it was it's hard to tell. I mean, we saw um, we saw one, you know, obviously with these, you see statements where, you know, a lot of members on both sides were saying, you know, I wish my bill would have been included. Um, and for one reason or another, it wasn't put in. Um, we saw some Democrats say like, hey, you know, this has bipartisan appeal. It's not controversial. You know, we should put this in. I mean, there was one example was um, uh, a, a bill that would that would that would force the FDA to write in their review documents how they how they used the patient experience data that was in the package. Um, not not necessarily saying like we this may did or did not influence the decision, but just saying this is what we this is how we looked at it. This is what we considered and so forth. Um, there were apparently some questions about that, but, you know, th th they were trying to kind of, you know, clarify things. And, you know, so that that could go in um, the subcommittee uh, chair, uh, Anna Eshoo, admitted that they they made a mistake when they wrote the original bill um, uh, provision that that requires contrast agents to be regulated as drugs. They said that they uh, they forgot to include ophthalmology products. So like eyedropper medications under this under a court ruling that that this language would essentially overturn eyedropper uh, you know, medications with the eyedroppers would have to be considered as drugs and devices and they just want those regulated as drugs just for simplicity's sake so yeah there's going to be there's going to be changes on the democratic side is what i'm is a lot that's a long way of saying that but the the inactive ingredient issue was a republican issue and which isn't surprising um you know when, when i when we looked into the story or this issue um Far, the pharmaceutical research and manufacturers of America said they have problems with it for the exact reasons that the Republicans brought up. So it looks like that if they're going to make changes, that's going to be one of the things that's going to be changed. So, you know, whether whether there'll be Democratic amendments, they, you know, may, you know, who knows at this point. But, um, you know, as you get more people involved, as which will happen when the full committee looks at the bill, you have a lot more chances to kind of get things added on or to, for more kind of fighting or whatever you want to call it. Right. I find yeah, it interesting never... that um, uh, excipients, um, inactive ingredients made it uh, uh, onto this stage. It seems like something that would normally be pretty much in the background politically and uh, wondering if uh, maybe that has something to do with, um, uh, you know, the increase in uh, complex generics that that is the issue um because part of the part of the problem is they the generic industry has to submit a they have to submit a controlled correspondence they're limited in the number of drugs they can ask about and fda is not allowed to basically they're only allowed to say yes you got that right or no it's wrong and if it's wrong then you pretty much have to make you're making a guess already then you just have to make another guess and send it again and if it's wrong you do it again and again and again until fda says yes you got it right well that's a really inefficient way of dealing with this problem and or deal, dealing with this so the fda has even asked for you know more latitude in terms of making inactive ingredient information available just i think they don't want their reviewers tied up constantly going back and forth to these 
brand company documents trying to see if these are correct or not. Yeah, you can certainly see the uh, the brand uh, uh, point that sort of, well, this is, you know, uh, this, is, this is something we developed. We shouldn't have to just uh, disclose it. But if FDA is going to eventually disclose it, it just kind of seems silly just for kind of to uh, waste everyone's time with that uh, that back and forth and uh, just slow the process down if uh, the eventual outcome will be uh, that the uh, generic firm learns of the uh, learns the numbers that they they need to learn. So, well, but you know, it it, it delays generic entry number one, which is you know competition, and it could scare off sponsors who might be on the fence on whether or not to, you know, to bring a generic to the product or to you know a generic to the market. So, you know, there's business implications to that potentially as well. But yeah, it it seems kind of it, you know, yeah, you don't want to disclose confidential commercial information, but, you know, yeah, if, if they're going to get it, you might as well just give it to them and get it over with. The The next markup of this bill is supposed to come up in the next coming in the coming days. Um, then we'll uh, we're assuming that it's going to get moved to the House floor. The Senate is still working on their version of the bill, so we'll see what they come up with and how close it is. My guess is they'll probably try and get it as pretty much as close to what the House comes up with as they possibly can, or at least have already worked out the differences before they even, um, before the, you know, the bill really starts to move. And hopefully they can, uh, you know, for the FDA's sake anyway, they can get this done, you know, in the next couple of months. Yeah, we'll be interested to see what the uh, the Senate has. And uh, um, obviously they may have a few more tweaks and uh, uh, those will get added in. But if there's some uh, difference of opinion on sort of kind of the hot button issues like, uh, Trial diversity or uh, accelerated approval that will obviously have to be negotiated between the two chambers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think they're both sides are, you know, all the stakeholders are probably hoping that, uh, you know, that those there aren't there aren't too many of those issues and there isn't too much of that back and forth that has to go on. Next up is, I think, a really interesting issue related to pharmaceutical manufacturing. New guidance clarifies how the agency could, in some instances, allow post-marketing agreements for quality issues. So, Bowman, you looked at this. What are they talking about here? Well, uh, thanks, Derek. This really grew out of um, uh, some discussions in the in the user fee negotiations about something that they're calling a, a benefit risk framework, um, which is kind of an interesting term. Most people use the term risk benefit, but at the FDA, uh, they say benefit risk, and the uh, idea there uh, generally is, you know, balancing the benefit of a product against, um, you know, risk uh, to the patient. And there might be some risk that um, you could accept uh, beyond what you would normally accept uh, because uh, the benefit is so high. And we've seen a lot of products recently where uh, it's been like that. And so there they were mainly talking about, um, you know, risks in terms of adverse events. But um, in that as that discussion went on, the people at the FDA realized that um, they also needed to address quality risks. So um, that's why they put this guidance out. And what it basically says is um, it gives it a new name to something that they've been doing all along. They used to call them CMC, um, post-approval commitments or similar types of name. That's referring to chemistry, manufacturing and controls. And um, now they're calling them quality post-marketing agreements. And uh, they're kind of 
starting a discussion here through this uh, draft guidance of, okay, under what circumstances would we allow uh, different types of um, quality issues to be resolved post-approval? And uh, I thought it was really interesting that they're doing this, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what the comments are. I think it'll be a really interesting discussion. Uh, these are issues that uh, they've been talking about for some years now um, in, in the context of breakthrough therapies, because uh, breakthrough therapies, uh, uh, the, the whole concept there is to accelerate the clinical trial process. And uh, what that ended up doing was um, uh, putting the CMC process of figuring out how you're going to make the product and how you're going to do the testing and so forth to assure quality. That was on the critical path to approval. And all of a sudden, these people who were used to having a lot of time tinkering with how they're going to make it while the clinical trials were going on, all of a sudden, everybody's looking at them saying, look, when can you wrap it up here? Because we want to start making money off of this product. So, um, and in that discussion, um, uh, you know, people in industry were talking to the agency about, well, why can't we just go ahead and approve it and finish some of this stuff afterward? And the agency was more of the opinion that, well, if uh, if you want to break through therapy designation, maybe you should think about starting this stuff earlier uh, so that you can be ready. So they had that discussion, and I think um, it looks like, uh, you know, the position has shifted. Uh, first, there was the breakthrough therapies. Then you had these amazing CAR-T therapies. And then on top of that, uh, then you had the pandemic. And um, uh, these vaccines were being authorized and uh, eventually approved um, in situations where, you know, a lot of the work was just being done kind of in real time. And a lot of things were pushed off, particularly stability testing until post-authorization. And uh, so it's going to be really interesting because uh, I know industry is really excited to um, take uh, what they've learned. You know, if it uh, if you can do it post approval for a breakthrough therapy, if you can do it post approval for a COVID vaccine, then um, why not for other products? Yeah, so, you know, that certainly seems to be the uh, the trend over the years of through kind of uh, you know FDA. Uh, allowing uh, companies to kind of to uh, gather more data, be it clinical or uh, um, uh, manufacturing post uh, um, post approval. Uh, I'm, I'm interested that they're sort of kind of, uh, you know, sort of moving along this road at the same time, there's a lot of uh, pushback about accelerated approval and the idea that sort of is that, uh, oh, uh, you know, we should actually, you know, get more um, uh, uh, clinical data um, before approval, uh, you know, sort of given the blowback from uh, from Agilehelm, uh, um, was there a sense that sort of kind of this is a inevitable moment, or sort of kind of that uh, um, there could be sort of kind of a uh, of more of a uh, political concern about uh, um, allowing this stuff out the door uh, um, uh, earlier than it normally would have been? You know, I feel like it's a, a legitimate scientific discussion about where you draw the line. It's interesting. I mean, on on the FDA side, you know, people. Uh, really need to look at this to resist um, the temptation to just focus on uh, the specific requirements without looking at a broader context. And from the industry side, of course, there's this uh, anticipation, you know, to start making money and, and serving patients. And uh, 
probably uh, the most interesting part about this is the way they're talking about uh, the patient perspective. Uh, and uh, I think that's something that we're going to see more and more of, patient relevance. Um, here, you know, I mean, you know, the basic idea is uh, why worry, uh, why spend a lot of time trying to get rid of an, an impurity that might add, you know, a one in a million excess cancer risk or a one in 10,000 when the product is uh, for patients who already have cancer and um, they need this approval uh, before they die. So you have different situations. Uh, other patients might, you know, other products might be for uh, chronic conditions that patients are going to use for a long time. And, and you know, uh, these small risks will really accumulate. You've really got to study that. Other things are for healthy people. So uh, you really need to have a broader perspective. And I think this uh, uh, this benefit-risk perspectives uh, creates a framework for that discussion. Bowman, have they yeah, that, have have they made any kind of indication yet, or or said how they would enforce an agreement like this? I mean, we've already there's already been criticism that post-marketing commitments or post-marketing requirements, or you know, at least in the accelerated approval context, are not completed in let's say a timely manner. Um, you know, I mean, with with something like this, I mean, in in the you know sometimes infrequency that they inspect facilities, I mean, how are they going to make sure that something like this gets done? Well, there, there wasn't really any discussion of that, but uh, I would think that um, you know, obviously, you're not allowed to make adulterated product, so uh, you know, there's some guardrails here. Before we leave this discussion, I think that today's my uh, my day for. Uh, for grammar rants, I was uh, complaining about uh, you know committee subcommittee earlier, and now I'm going to complain about uh, benefit risk. If you call it benefit risk or risk benefit, you know it's really sort of uh, benefit harm or you know uh, potential and uh, um, or you know or if you, you could say potential benefit and uh, and risk, but sort of kind of risk is uh, um, uh, in, indefinite, whereas uh, uh, benefit seems uh, seems certain. So uh, you should really sort of make those uh, make those concepts parallel if you're going to talk about them. I certainly uh, um, it's an important point about the balancing all that. Uh, but I just wish people would use the uh, the words that I like about uh, that kind of. Thing. <laughs> you know, I have to agree with you um, because uh, benefit risk it puts the accent on the positive. It just seems like you should you know use the standard term and you know, be honest about what you're talking about, but that's me. I'm just going to take the simpleton's view on this. Risk-benefit just rolls off my tongue better, easier. It right. just, it's easier to say than benefit-risk because there's, I guess, less syllables at the beginning. So, I, you know, you can take a, any kind of any angle on that, that on that discussion that you want, I guess. Either way, <laughs> the accent is on the word benefit, so um, that's worth keeping in mind. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll never get FDA to uh, to go uh, with uh, benefit harm or harm benefit, which is uh, my preferred approach. But at least they're making uh, you know uh, progress on sort of getting uh, getting potentially beneficial uh, products to patients faster. So we can all be happy about that. Yeah, Quite exactly. Sure. Finally, we're going to take a look at the advisory committee process. Mike McCann had an interesting take on the continuing drop in the number of actual advisory committee meetings in recent years. They usually are envisioned as a public discussion of the benefits and risks of a drug or 
discussions of the clinical relevance of a product. But McCann argues that the recent non-COVID-19 meetings have been de facto courts of appeal for products that seem to be on the road to a complete response letter. So, Matt, I wanted to get your take on this. Do you, do you think we're seeing a shift in advisory committee kind of function here, or is this just kind of the luck of the draw, so to speak, and there's just been a recent run of these sorts of questions that they've had to answer? It's a good question, Derek. You know, there are so few advisory committees these days that it uh, it's hard to sort of draw general conclusions based on those small numbers, but he does make the case uh, relatively convincingly that uh, you know, we're seeing a different kind of committee and uh, you know perhaps it's just a, a function of if you're going to uh, go through the hassle of uh, um, you know bringing these committees together with sort of the conflict of interest problems and sort of kind of the various scheduling uh, um, challenges that they all have you know it needs to be for a uh, a, a real a real problem that you're uh, you're facing and this seems to be a uh, um and a you know the uh, the way that they're uh, approaching it uh, you know Mike did a great job laying out the um the various uh, um uh, you know, um, uh, controversies and uh, and such here, and uh, you know they're they're not all sort of kind of the the same kind of appeals mechanism, but they're uh, they're each and every one sort of kind of a uh, uh, issue disagreements for perhaps not so much uh, um, uh, between the sponsor and FDA, but between the uh, um, you know factions and FDA uh, um, themselves in uh, in certain circumstances. So they're not uh, um, you know um, uh, identical in every way, but uh, um, it does seem to be that there are, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, I would say, uh, you know, years and years ago, the the idea that you got advisory committee was sort of a, was a good sign. That's sort of kind of that uh, oh, the the review is making progress. You're sort of kind of kind of you're moving to the next step. And now, sort of uh, for the most part, getting an advisory committee uh, seems like a really bad sign that there's something uh, some some problem with your uh, um, with your review that they have to bring it to an advisory committee. So uh, that is a different uh, um, a different approach that the agency seems to be taking. What's interesting about this issue is that, um, just thinking back, advisory committee members have said they want their votes to matter. And, you know, we've, you know, like in the case of an overwhelming vote against approval, they want that to influence FDA decisions. And, you know, we've seen that in in some survey, some surveys that have been done in the wake of the Adjahelm decision. And, you know, if the committees are serving as an appeals court, I mean, that's kind of giving them what they want, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If they were just, um, you know, giving a, uh, a perfunctory thumbs up on, uh, you know, most of the uh, products that sort of FDA is going to approve anyway, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be as meaningful to be on an advisory committee or to uh, to have an advisory committee meeting. So in that uh, in this sense, they are, uh, you know, perhaps not getting to uh, decide um, what happens with a uh, um, a product. It's still sort of kind of up to FDA, but they're uh, um the, the time that they spend is is much more meaningful and has much more of an impact because there are fewer advisor committees now. Yeah, so it it's you know it it it's an interesting thing to think about. And you know, this is something that's going to come up to um probably down the road as the FDA considers advisory committee reforms that um uh, you know Robert Califf has talked about it, uh Patrizia Cavazzoni and Cedar has talked about it, um, you know, trying to you know, whether you want to get the emotion out of the meetings or, you know, focus more on the scientific discussion or just better define when it, meetings should be called and when they don't need to be had, you know, when you don't need to have them. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the, um, on the out, you know, the outcome of that in, in the context of, of this as we go forward. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. 
You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Bowman Cox and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>